Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Just for Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, this is Leslie Gish. You're listening to the Gist of Freedom. Please stay tuned for our uh, uh, host, Mr. Roy Paul. Tonight we have on the line a historian, and we have on the line Mr. Roy Paul. Thank you, Roy. Did you cue the music? Hello. Hi there, uh, Teresa Kemp. Yes, this is Teresa Kemp. How are you, Atlanta's Court Lady? I am doing so well. It is such a pleasure to be speaking uh, with such a phenomenal, phenomenal woman, in the words of Dr. Maya Angelou, you don't know how anxious I have been all week to really get down um, and deep with you and deep into African American history. The director of the Underground Railroad Quilt Code Museum. Now, I need to go back to the beginning with you, Teresa. I feel like I can do that. Uh, I want you to uh, tell me. Uh, where you started and where your love of black history came from. I was born in Baumholder, West Germany, and my father married my mother when they met at West Virginia State and was commissioned in ROTC to Germany. He was stationed there quite a few times, and by being a military brat, we are surrounded by history that dates back B.C., in Europe. So everything where I grew up, the town I was born in was actually the town of Dr. Frankenstein. I lived in Hanau with uh, um, Hans Christian Andersen and Brothers Grimm's fairy tales. I lived in Heidelberg, Germany with the castles. And we would travel throughout Europe seeing all the tapestries and artistry and, and the gold and jewels. And I was taught there about the majesty of Africa, the opulence of the African kingdoms, the wisdom of the people, and I couldn't wait to come to America, and I graduated at 15 years old in Berlin, West Germany, and it was post-World War II, so all of the artifacts that had been taken by Nazi Germany were being returned, cataloged, the um, concentration camps were actually being outfitted for viewing, so they were stacking the bones, the clothes, and things like that. And when I returned to America, you can imagine I was in culture shock to hear that the African people were illiterate, unskilled, pagan, poor, and that they were taken to be Christianized, but they were not useful. And I looked around America at the history they were teaching. They were saying that the um, in Southern America, the people couldn't read. They came multilingual, sometimes not speaking English. But there were schools in the South in the 1800s during and prior to the Civil War, so I was baffled by this history. The other thing that shocked me was that here in America they didn't consider Egypt and its magnificent gold and, and the artistry as part of Africa. So you had the enlightened Egypt, and you had the deep, dark continent of West Africa. And I thought, my goodness, what happened here? All people had come from Africa, highly skilled, many are monotheistic, and the culture, the religion, the skills had all been taken to Europe, and the modern African children and people, say from last century, 1900s on, didn't know their history. So right. that starts now, our search and our journey. 
Yeah. And so take me to then the process and the thought of the Underground Railroad Traveling Museum. My mother was absolutely shocked after they published the book about our family working on the Underground Railroad. It was called Hidden in Plain View. The authors were Jacqueline Tobin and Raymond Dobard. They interviewed my great-aunt Ozella McDaniel Williams in the Charleston, South Carolina market. She was the quilt lady, and she sold lemonade and quilts. And they interviewed her, wrote the book, and she passed of cancer while they were publishing the book, Double Day and Random House were the publishers. So then there was quite the controversy following the book about, well, the African people weren't smart enough to do this. Well, these are American Civil War quilt patterns. And then my son was being taught in the Atlanta, Georgia public schools. The teacher said she was African American. She was trying to motivate my son, but she told him and his classmates that they were the descendants of Africans and only part of a person, and they should not expect any more because they had come from this lineage of African slaves. So our family started sending questions, starting mounting all of our resources. My aunts and great aunts were sending me things, my mother's sisters and uncles, so that we could show my son and the other children that they had a great history, that they were really skilled. And so my mother said, you know, don't argue, just send a question every day. Where does Hershey's get its chocolate? Where does BP get its oil? What is a blood diamond and why is it called that? You know, what is the Benin bronze? Where, what are the Adinkra symbols? You know, where is the Gold Coast? We just kept going until it became, you know, really clear that the world had to go to West Africa, you know, or Africa period for the resources that they need. And many of them were, I had seen growing up in the museums, and they taught me that I was beautiful. So I was never ridiculed, put down the way many African-American or African people treat each other and other people see Africans and African-Americans today. So the museum was the result of my parents contracting cancer, and I wanted to show them that I was committed to teaching what they had allowed me to learn, delayed gratification, reconciliation skills, and basically that all people had come from Africa and show the variety of skills, the wisdom, the knowledge that had been passed down and I had been allowed to see. Now, I want to delve deeper into the education part of this because I think this could be an excellent training lesson because one of the things we try to do with Against the Freedom is not just to educate the masses, but to take this lesson plan, this radio show, and send it to different teachers who teach African-American history. And so I want to delve deeper in this, and you're the perfect person to do this. But before I do, please explain the importance of the quilt to the African-American history. Well, there are many different ways that the African people documented their language, their culture, the history, and basically everyday life. And one way was putting it in rocks. There's over 300 stones still there in Nigeria where my ancestor, Peter Farrell, who became the abolitionist, is from. He's Igbo, which is um, in south of Nigeria, pretty much southeastern. They have south, 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 north. It's, I mean, it's, it's basically um, central and south Nigeria. And the people were taken all over. They had pyramids there in Igbo land. And they documented the culture in textiles, in writing, in metals like the Benin bronze, and there were over 2,000 of those taken. They also documented it on musical items, and their instruments have history. The caves have um, history that are there in Nigeria. They used paper, animal skin. There's a document, or many documents, that are in the libraries of Timbuktu where they say they burned the sacred words into animal skin so that they could, they could never be changed. So you can imagine 
when people see the quilts here, they weren't familiar with animal skin maps, tree bark fabric, and they thought that these were American Civil War era patterns. But they're dated in Nigeria to 900 AD, and it's controversial, but also 2200 BC. So it's a long-standing history, and these patterns and textiles and symbolic language or writings, drawings, have been documented for centuries with uh, in caves and many, many different ways, in stories and songs and legends that go with the textiles at festivals, weddings, funerals, the histories recited and memorized by people like myself who are called griots. And the griot spends, like I've spent 40 years studying under my mother, my great-aunts, the history of our family from Europe to the year 149 A.D. And in West Africa, we did not have a complete history. So we had been working the past 30 years to document that history and understand the symbols that were in the quilt, what their original meanings were, and how Peter and his wife Eliza sewed African patterns and prints, symbols, into quilts in America that were used as maps and messages to help freedom seekers get to a safe haven. And Underground Railroad conductors knew the patterns, so did many, many of the West African tribes. So now it's a language. Talk about that discovery process, the, the discovery of trying to research that history and the patterns, et cetera. Well, we always knew that it was a language. Peter Farrell and Eliza had a son in 1858, and his name is also Reverend Peter Farrell, Jr. He married a woman. We thought her name was Maliza, but it's also the same as his mother's Eliza. And he had a daughter named Nora, who had my grandmother, Mary Eva, and Ozella, her sister. And my, Mary Eva had my mother. So her great-grandfather, Peter Farrow, taught my mother the patterns, her numbers and writings, and called, would say, come here, my little Igbo girls. Sit here, or gals, is what he said. Come sit on my lap. Tell me your ABCs. Let me tell you of our history. In Edgefield, South Carolina, McCormick, South Carolina, and Georgia, he would go around and visit all the family and make sure that they kept their faith, their culture, history, and traditions. So we can, we make sausage, we smoke fish and other meats. They had 80 acres of crops on 125 acres of land we still have. So they would travel around but always come back home, and that's what the Debia did, or traders, priests, and kings, these metalsmiths called Oka in Nigeria. When brought here for slavery, our ancestor Peter was on a Glen County, Georgia plantation. When my mother and dad went to Salt Lake City, Utah to speak for the um, Worldwide Women's Organization, a division of United Nations, the Mormon church did our genealogy back to Dover Hall Plantation, William Dover, or Thomas Dover, who died in 1844, and willed Peter and Eliza to his nephew, uh, William Dover Jenkins. And so we actually have copies of the plantation wills that were probated in 1844, 1845, for slave valuements naming Peter and Eliza, and you can see their increasing value. And um, the last will is dated 1858. So we've always known our family was from... Nigeria, and Dahomey is where his, the original Peter's wife is from. She was branded with a D, and they were basket weavers, textile artists, and she was a midwife. So she would travel around setting up quilting houses and delivering babies, which became key once the British abolished slavery in 1807. No longer was it legal to import African people to the Americas. And so people began breeding them, and I didn't really understand breeding until my father-in-law gave me a document where one man had 150 children in a year. And to me, that was the beginning of the breakdown of the family unit as they had known it in Africa. So you can see we've known our history, 
but there was quite a bit of difference on the history of the Igbo tribes. There are four different theories or methods that they teach in the Nigerian school systems. But for more than 60 years, their history was taught to them by the British. Wow. Now, you have all of this uh, and the quilt code all documented in this traveling exhibition that you're doing. Talk about how you started that, where you've been, and how you plan to continue. Okay. Well, what I did with the exhibit, in 2007, this Igbo tribe were declared Jews. But that was something that we kind of had always known with my parents' research. My mother did five research trips to uh, West Africa and one to Israel. She would call me each time saying, you're not going to believe what I saw. They have the same type of um, preservation for vegetation, which is banking the yams, as we had on our farm. They had the same red clay that's in Georgia and South Carolina. They sweep their yards. The houses are the same. Many of the systems were the same. But we have a shake array with the Star of David on it. My mom had purchased a West African textile, and we've had over 300 people who could read it, and they said that it was Hebrew. Then when we began looking into it, I began talking and asking people, every single person that I met, my cab drivers, about the Igbo people. And last year I was invited to come to a conference, the World Igbo Assembly. I learned the first paragraph of my speech in the Igbo language to say I am not a lost soul, that the same God that's over me in America and knows the number of hairs on my head, he knows where they are because leaders of the Igbo people had come from Europe, um, Asia, South America, Africa, and they assembled there to talk about the issues and problems, and I asked their permission to speak, to tell them of our history and our family, that African Americans are not lost. A gentleman named Dr. Anakwesi gave me two books that had began to talk about, well, it was the consultant for the book was 114 years old, and it documented the Igbo people and the evolution of the name, we have posters here in America that say, Fine Hebus, H-E-E-B-O-E-S, for sale. And it said that they could do rice, they were metal, could work in metal, they could do cotton, they were fine specimens and diseased-free and all of that. So with the book, it enabled me to write the book, Keeper of the Fire, and they invited me to be on the committee for the first World Igbo Arts and Cultural Festival. So where we usually do the Underground Railroad Secret of the Quilts exhibit, which is what the symbols mean, how they were used here in the United States to assist people, um, the Keeper of the Fire exhibit focuses on the African patterns being cut into the skin of West African people in the patterns that we're calling American quilt patterns. For the first time, I showed the photographs of maybe, we'll, we call it the bow tie quilt pattern, but it's mm -hmm. cut into the stomachs, the face, the chest, and the back on African people that were here in America. Because one of the questions people asked me, well, how many people knew this quilt code? How did they know who to help? How, did they, how many people were helped using this quilt code? So now there's the slave ship database that's available online, and there's an insurance database that's also available online where you're able to document how many voyages came from this area of the country. You're able to take a look at the names of people, and actually some friends of mine have actually found, or the Igbo people can tell you what village they're from. We've done DNA so that I know my DNA came from the Ethiopia-Sudan area coming across Central Africa, settling in Nigeria, then jumping here to America. So the first theory is that the people, um, the tribes of Israel, when Joseph's brothers went into Egypt, they, everybody didn't go. Only Joseph's family went into Egypt, and some of the younger ones traveled west. 
The Bible tells us that Roman soldiers took Hebrew slaves to Calabar and to Carthage. So there's many different migrations and waves of people coming over centuries to West Africa, but they can document and find them by their language, by their customs, and by their skills. My ancestor in West Africa did what's called the lost wax process. That was done on the Egyptian gold by the Hebrew slaves or Hebrew captives or the tribes of Israel. And so six of the tribes of Israel, by DNA match, by the language, by their artifacts, have been linked to the tribes of Israel, the original tribes of Israel. And these African people have their lineage, in my case, back to 1042 B.C. A gentleman named Dr. Sidney Davis and Catherine Ochilona did research on some of the Ibo Ukwu, which is a city in Nigeria, archaeological digs. A gentleman, British gentleman named Thurston Shaw heard about them in the 1950s and in the 1960s and 70s, did the um, excavations of who they're saying now may be Sargon the Great. And he came from Sumer, which is a city Abraham came from in East Africa. And they've dated the remains, they believe, at 2200 to 2500 B.C. That would then be the oldest find because Sumer or the town of Ur was destroyed. Sargon the Great, many people know him as Nimrod in the Bible. The part that I'm positive about and is wonderful, Thurston Shaw had that bow tie quilt pattern in the finds, in textiles and symbols in those archaeological digs, which is what tied me to um, the British archives. And I'm a member of the um, Royal British and Irish Archaeological Institute so that I could access the records. A lot of people say there's no records of Igbo or West African history. The Portuguese, starting in like the 1100s, the Spanish, the Dutch, the French, and the British all have records, maps of the African people. So I have, and what I'll do following the radio show is I will put links to those different databases on your Facebook page or my Facebook page and online at plantationquilts.com. Thank you so much. And, and in addition to that, we also want to show some of those photos that you have of the West African people who came uh, in the slave trade and who have those patterns cut into their skin. Okay, well, what I'll do is I will send you some because they are amazing. Uh, the crossroads pattern, the fan pattern is actually on the forehead and the chin of some of the um, the women and the men. And what's even more amazing, they have caves. So our bear paw pattern and the bear paw trail, they were familiar with the temperature. In Africa, it gets over 100 degrees. So they would go in the caves because they're cool. They stay between 52 and 60 degrees. Here in America, coming through Tennessee, Ohio, Kentucky, um, they would hide in the caves, especially if it was cold, because it gets sub-zero in Virginia and those areas, but the caves, again, are warm at 52 to 60 degrees. So they had waterfalls like Niagara Falls, which is our tumbling block pattern. So we're able to see that the birds migrate. Over 250 birds migrated in Africa, telling the people the seasons of the year. So we do the science and math of the Underground Railroad, and those Canadian geese migrate every year, south to the Gulf of Mexico, telling the people in the south the seasons and when it's going to change here in America. So the patterns and the quilt code, my great aunt documented it four years after her grandfather, Peter Farrow Jr., died. In 1950, she got the federal copyright, and we recopyrighted it in the 1990s. So it's really an amazing story of um, a Native American, European, African, and African-American family. And to that that extent, uh, I, I want you, if someone said to you, explain the significance of those cave writings, what would you say to them? That the people were literate, speaking many different languages. They spoke Portuguese, they spoke French, and they spoke fan- Spanish, and were able to understand the culture and learn from it 
and teach these current our current children that the African people contributed and built America in ways that they built Africa. And the proof of their skill is worldwide, not just here in America, the world. And it's so funny you say that because a lot of people are sticklers for the actual proof, right? And when people try to uh, erase the influence of African-American history, on society at large in the world, there is actually proof. Only way that they knew how at that time to document and leave a print of what they knew and how they knew it based on the resource that they had at that time. And so it's somewhat empowering, I think. And this is why when people say, when you know your past, you can go forward in the future, and, and they all express the importance of knowing your history, because if you did, you would know that the history that is being left for us to research and to study and to pass down from generation to generation, it's all there and it's written for us in plain sight. That's right. That is exactly right. And that's why I loved your website because you have so many of my heroes that have come down through the years. Now, the significance with the book coming out, The Keeper of the Fire, is that it is a resource book and it names all the sources, the archives, libraries, museums, websites, and video references with a huge bibliography passed down from generation to generation in our family. And it's, it has a lot of the books that we even hold in our archives and our personal collection. So it's so that in case I should forget, I've had chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. I'm doing well. Everything's in remission and congestive heart failure so that it will not be lost. We are the bridge from my mother's father being born in 1850s, my mother in the 1830s, and I'm born in the, I mean, my mother's born in the 1930s, and I'm born in the 1950s. So I have bridged two generations. But our third generation goes back to the my great-grandfather, great 1814. So we're able to span generations like very few families in America can. And we have four houses on the National Register of Historic Places filled with artifacts. So I enjoy people asking me for the proof so that I can share it. I give copies of documents for students or teachers or anybody doing reports or masters or PhDs so that they can make A's and get those degrees. Yeah. Uh, now, you're going to be coming to New York for one of these book signings, I hope. I sure am. I'll let you know when I come. Yes, and and if uh, I know that the Gifts of Freedom and myself would personally like to be involved with that, if you would like. Uh, certainly, in Absolutely. terms of you know, I I don't know if you need a space to host it. I don't know if you need help with inviting people to come. Um, but I would certainly like to help you, um, even even using some of my communications resources and trying to help you book interviews with different reporters, et cetera, who cover this work. Uh, I'd be happy to, to do that. I'm sure the Gifts of Freedom would as well. I had been invited to the um, Long Island African American Museum, and they ended up having Hurricane Sandy, and so we all had to cancel. And Al Miller, who did the um, Frederick Douglass in Central Park, wanted to use the quilt code symbols, and they batted it down with not enough proof, and we had cancer and were in active treatment at the time. My parents have since died, so we weren't able to defend his artistry. So I look forward to coming to New York to do an exhibit and book signings, and I'd love you to be in the middle. Yeah, uh, and I know someone who has uh, curated uh, different exhibits, and he knows how to connect with the different art people. Uh, so okay. you know, let's talk about when you want to do that and, and give us some lead time, and I will make you know some of the calls so that we can try to see if we can get some of this uh, as an exhibit, even if it's temporary. Uh, and, and put something spectacular together so we can really get something going on here. Sounds wonderful. I'm booking the 2018 right now. <laughs> that, that, let's please do it. Now, I, I want you to, to talk about um, the, the significance uh, of uh, the Statue of Liberty. Well, the Statue of Liberty, you know, strange you should say that. The Statue of Liberty was a gift. And it was a gift from France. And what's my, my grandfather, he wrote a speech in 
1937 that I try to read at every exhibit, and he talks about what a gift it is to be able and a splendid opportunity for our girls and boys to have education, and that we who have the are afforded the opportunity of education should be servants and expect more work and better work, but that we're all servants just the same, some serving in public and some serving in a higher capacity, but we're all servants just the same. He says anybody that's ashamed to be called a servant is terribly misguided and definitely in need of fireside training or what is called home training. He goes on to say there's room in this country for every hardworking, industrious man or woman who's willing to work. And then he signs it, M.J. Strother, Colored. And 1937, November 17th. And what's so significant about that is that we were struggling historically. In my book, I actually have um, the newspaper ads where it says, all German and Irish immigrants should be immediately made slaves. That was the public opinion in the 1800s. And then we come around again, and we had the issues with Native Americans being citizens, with Asian people being citizens, with African Americans and, and segregation, Jim Crow laws. And now here we are again repeating history. And so it's very important that the Statue of Liberty is saying, send me everybody, give me your hurt, your downtrodden, your poor. And yet somehow we've lost that mission and that vision in America, that we're turning the children away, we're turning away refugees, we're turning away anybody saying, well, there's a process. There was no process in place when many of the European people came, when the African people came enslaved, and it, they thought everybody finds a way to justify their being here. And so the Statue of Liberty means a lot to me, as you can tell. <laughs> you you right. got me started. <laughs> No, and, and, and that's good. It's important. I see history repeating itself, and by teaching history and using the, uh, the, the, it's right there in the harbor. I don't know how we can then try to exclude people when our country is full of resources only because of the diversity and the way we address issues differently. Some people read right to left. Some people read left to right. Some up to down and some down and up. And what what is amazing is how in America we often don't think that if somebody got a degree, even a master's degree or two degrees from another country, it's not as worth or has the same weight as a degree from America. When every country or all the continents all the continents are equally as old, but some of the other countries had universities way before America was allegedly founded, but the Native Americans were here all the time. So I don't understand why the youngest educational system devalues the other education or knowledge of people, because it's us working together as a community and my family working together with many people, as you were saying, people of different races and faiths, to get people free, and they used witty inventions, they knew, used their knowledge, and they used their skill sets to get people free and only coming here for freedom. So people are still coming right. here for freedom and should be allowed. Now, I didn't tell you that I was going to ask you about this ahead of time, but what do you think of President Obama delaying any decision on uh, immigration reform? President Obama has his hands full. Every day, <laughs> every day there's probably a hundred issues that we are not aware of that he faces. And, I mean, down to people jumping over his fence and coming in the front door. But <laughs> terroristic threats and things like that. So when we look at the job of a president, I think he's delaying the decision because of the interim, um, the volatility of the issue. And they're trying to get a Democratic House and Senate. And that's going to be really sticky as an issue. And that was something that was amazing to me. My major was political science and economics when I came to the United States, and we didn't even know about a Continental Congress. So right now, people do not even know the issues 
that are of importance and that affect their day-to-day lives. We had the vote, um, African-American people still having the vote came up, and many people were not even registered to vote and don't know why they should vote. Whatever you're going to vote, you should get out and register. People should go to the polls, and then they won't be afraid to bring different important issues up immediately because they would have a majority of either Republicans or Democrats, and we would know the outcome, you know, because we kind of know what everybody's going to vote. They poll them to see how they're going to vote, and they know that the issue that you're talking about of immigration is one that's going to be a game changer. They want to appeal to the large Hispanic group. Even with the quilts, when it comes to textiles and the textile industry, I read they sent something out to our industry, me as a quilt museum, and it says, how many children do white Americans have? Then it asked, how many children do African-American people have? Then it says, how many children do Spanish people or Hispanic people have? And it says, if you don't have your marketing material in Spanish or multiple languages, then you're missing out on the majority of the market because, oh, Asian people were 1.5, white people were 2, African-Americans were 3.4, but the Hispanic population were 8 to 12 children. So it is a large majority here in the United States, and they are vocal and beginning to organize. And so they don't. he wants to delay the vote because they want the best chance at getting as many Democrats in. And the Democratic Party, nor the Republican Party, nor the Tea Party or Independents can all agree on how to handle immigration, how to handle the border situations. And if the towns are on the border or are affected by immigrations because Americans are afraid of losing jobs instead of saying this is a workforce that we need, one of the things I fight is human trafficking. And we see many, 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 many people coming from South America or Hispanic or Latino countries, and they're being trafficked, just like they were for this past uh, World Cup games. They were teaching prostitutes English for the past two years to accommodate the traffic for World Cup. So it's a touchy situation on all fronts. So I want, I want everyone involved in the political process. I want everybody to understand the voice that they have. When people are saying they want power, they want control, we've been given that with our um, legislative system. Are you old enough to remember Sesame Street and how a bill is made? They used to teach it when we were infants. I, I not only I don't remember it when it aired, but I remember seeing videos of it actually just recently. Um, oh, okay. Because uh, so, someone died, and, and and it was becoming much popular. I forgot who it was, but someone right. died, and they were they were talking about those videos. Okay. Well, we there was a generation that got out, voted, made changed. Once you once a law is changed, like segregation was changed. My husband's father took him every Saturday someplace to integrate. So what has to happen whenever you want change or whenever you want, whatever your issues are, you have to then get the legislation before your representatives and walk it through. Once it becomes a law, then you still have to get it implemented locally. Because right now if they said every person who wants to come to America could, we still have to have everything in place to get a smooth transition. And that's what happened with segregation. We still had to go and actually go places and try to eat, try to ride the bus, you know, try to buy things, try to move in different areas that were formerly segregated, joining organizations that were formerly uh, African Americans were not allowed. And that's what has to be done across the board. One of the most powerful things that we do at the museum uh, when I had the, I'm going to, I'm rebuilding a museum. It'll be open fall of 2016 in Atlanta. But what I did is I had students to come and learn how to write grants. Grant writing classes are free at thefoundationcenter.org. There are five actual facilities here in the United States, but they have free online grant writing for individuals, 
international individuals, businesses, 501c3s. They document everybody who gave money last year for whatever they gave money to. And so that is a powerful tool. You can write grants. You can get money for whatever you want, whether it's school equipment, more books, better library, senior citizens, Alzheimer's studies, any interest you have, travel, education, and we that gives you more or gas, gas to the car of whatever your interest is. So whatever you want our legislators to know, if you want to go and tell them personally, there's monies available for that. And it's thefoundationcenter.org. But learning how to write, learning to use that voice is the most powerful thing you can do. Because I'm not just for Republicans. My um, One of my first cousins, Ophelia DeVore, was actually given a position over the Kennedy Center by one of the Republican presidents. Now, is this Ophelia DeVore the uh, fashion icon? Yes, she was a civil rights icon. She also worked to change the way African-American people see themselves, job readiness, and the way other people see African-American people. She was the the, uh, epithet behind a lot of famous African-American models, including Diane Carroll. Correct. Richard Roundtree, Lieutenant O'Hara, she was, um, she's, my mother and her mother are sisters, so we're first cousins. And my mother had um, 16 brothers and sisters, 11 born in the 1800s, and Ophelia's mom was one of my mother's older sisters. And so we have had a history of civil service and commitment. Our families focused on our faith, family, and service to our community. And that's it's important for us that we try to leave the world better than we found it. Ophelia was designated as a history maker. She purchased many of the African-American newspapers that were struggling, and she was became the publisher or editor of many of those newspapers, still having the one, the Columbus Times in Columbus, Georgia. She also um, had the first international modeling agency for African and African-American people. Her papers are now at Emory University. And I went to see those papers after she and I had talked, and she told me they were there. Because when in the 1940s, she wanted to have a cosmetic line for African-American people or women of color. And the pharmaceutical company basically just rejected her. She sent them more letters in the 1950s, and I kept on reading through those boxes of papers, and suddenly there was one, and the meeting had been scheduled with the pharmaceutical company, and her makeup line was in Morocco, Nigeria, France. It was worldwide for women of color. I had tears rolling down my cheeks, but we can gain inspiration and strength from the stories on your website when we see what those people went through and how they walked it out. We know that we can walk it out, too. And are you still connected with any of the descendants of Ophelia DeVore? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm one of I'm one of her cousins, but I know all her children. We, okay. um, I attended her memorial service, and her all five of her children came, and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Her daughter, Carol invites me to come to many different things. They have a a very active community in Columbus, Georgia. Ophelia had gone to live in Columbus, Georgia, but it was far too slow compared to the glitz and glam of Manhattan. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But, yes, I I know her children, and I met even more of them, the grandchildren and great-grands. That's the generations I'm working on because I've spent so much time with the histories of our family until I, we've all kind of grown apart as the older set had died out. They didn't even know my mother or her sister were still living because, you know, their mothers were born in, and, and, and fathers were born in the 1800s, so they presumed them all dead. My mother kept in touch with everybody, and they called her doll, so everybody was kind of aware of her, but she kind of dropped off the grid when she developed cancer in 2000, 
And so they were really happy to know that we still have the collections, we had the history. And um, Ophelia DeVore and my mother, Serena Strother Wilson, were honored because the History Makers collection of videos of them is now in the Library of Congress. So we were really happy in sharing the news with everybody because you can actually go see videotapes of Ophelia and many other African-American movers and shakers that are in the History Makers collection, and that's historymakers.com. Yeah, and, we have you know, reported uh, at the District of Freedom on a lot of the history makers, and one of the things we try to do, uh, as has been done in the past, is we do historical pieces about people from the history makers, but we are almost seldom able to speak with an actual history maker, sometimes too because of their passing, or a descendant of theirs. Um, and oh, okay. we are very familiar with Ophelia DeVore and the work that she has done. Uh, and if you can help us take an interview with one of her descendants, that would be amazing. Oh, that's an easy to do. We could call Carol. Her son's still there in New York and his wife, but her daughter Carol and granddaughters, yeah, they're all available. And, you know, many of them are public speakers, so I know they'd have no problem in coming on your show and sharing her wonderful legacy with you because they're continuing her legacy. I know Carol is with the newspaper. She and her husband still run Ophelia's newspapers and and that um, section of her work. And her sister was Percola DeVore, and she had the modeling school, and or I guess they're called Charm Schools and Modeling International Modeling Agency in Washington D.C. Her children are still alive and kicking and moving and shaking. Yeah, we would love to, you know, highlight her her work and her history and do whatever we could to add to the online archives about her. Oh, that'd be wonderful. That would be wonderful. Well, what I'll do is I will send them all emails and put your phone number in there if that's okay and Absolutely. get you in touch with them in the morning. That would be great. Um, so uh, just so people can find out more information about you, the work that you've done, and the work that you're going to do, please give us some online information for us to contact you. Well, it's plantationquilts.com, P-L-A-N-T-A-T-I-O-N-Q-U-I-L-T-S, all one word, dot com. If you put in Underground Railroad Quilt Code or Quilt Lady, you'll come up with me. It tells you about our work in fighting human trafficking. I'm Scotland Yard trained. And we, Atlanta is the number one slaving hub in the country, and people have begun coming to Atlanta, Georgia, for sexual tours with children. So we're actively fighting for stricter legislation, the visas for women or children or men who can't go back home because their families would kill them. And we want victim restitution. We need more beds. So the last exhibit I did, the Keeper of the Fire exhibit, I went to Tennessee Temple University to raise funds for a proposed International Women's Recovery Center that would be a long-term situation for victims recovered from human traffic or survivors of human trafficking, let me not say victims, and, and domestic violence. Because, as you know, it's obviously a growing topic, but we try to move women, men, and children who are having issues with domestic violence on an underground railroad throughout America and to safety even today. I'm still working as an abolitionist and that's um, and raising funds for at-risk population and education of at-risk populations. We're finding many young ladies are volunteering for prostitution for red-bottom shoes and a $500 cell phone, and they're mm-hmm. not expecting to then be forced to sleep with 30 men a night, and then killed. Wow. Yeah. That's a very, very powerful stuff. I, I do believe you can write a speech. <laughs> well, I tell you, I, you know, at first I wasn't doing using Twitter, and we had, we've had our website since the 19, about 95, something like that, and I didn't want to tweet. And then I was sitting here praying one day, and it came to me, if I can do anything to keep your son or daughter from being killed, I've had, you know, health issues. I can't go in with guns blazing and try to go find and recover children. So that's why I'm working with the legislation and the recovery side. 
and leaving that to other groups who do that. But I can tweet so that or use Facebook to constantly bring to the forefront the issues of human trafficking, methods of escape, culture, help them stay in school, make better grades, all the things that we can do as individuals, know what the signs and symptoms look like, know that there are 1-800 numbers that they can call if they suspect it. You don't have to go investigate it. You don't have to try to get them out. But there are many different um, numbers that we have on our website on the Stop Human Trafficking page. And, you know, that's a lot of – there's so many different ways. I don't know if you have a Lowe's or a Home Depot in your area where we had a lot of migrant workers or we had men who'd be outside. So people even pick men up to do day labor jobs. Not only do they sexually abuse them, but then they may not even pay them because they know they're illegal immigrants, and that's a form of human trafficking too. Mm-hmm. That's great. You know, um, having I, people get tried for jobs on Monster.com, they work two weeks and they're not getting paid. Mm-hmm. Same thing. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I remember an interview that I did with Dr. Maya Angelou. Um, this was probably, oh gosh, a couple of years ago, maybe two years, three years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, and she said that the uh, quilts were used to make dresses. Uh, you know, right. someone got you know got married. They would take the quilt, put it together, make a wedding dress. Um, do you know about that? Yes, they would take your dresses and repurpose them. But before they would in um, in the one of the books that we have called News of the Colored People. They're my grandfather's newspaper articles that appeared in Edgeville Advertiser in the early uh, 1930s. They talk about having weddings, and it would be six couples or ten couples. And so they would take whatever they had and repurpose it. A lot of times they used the feed sack bags. They would bleach them and dye them, or they'd use different types of homespun fabrics and they would use them to make the wedding dresses or they would pass the dresses down or whatever fabrics and scraps of fabric. Unlike what most people think, our family had access to a lot of different silks, satins, brocades, um, and and beautiful velvets. So, again, we didn't just have the hand-me-downs and that type of thing. There was a free, affluent society in the United States 1600s, 1700s, 1800s that not only worked on the Underground Railroad, wrote books, and were educated, skilled workers, barbers, blacksmiths, poets, art, artistries, architects, you name it, doctors. And those people didn't have to have mammy-made, as they say, or hand-me-down things. They would buy fabrics, have tailors make them, and my mother wrote that they made homespun fabric, but they also had tailors and seamstresses to make their dresses when they were little. And one of my aunts, um, Sarah Quattlebaum in Philadelphia, worked for the Singer Sewing Machine Company because she sewed so well. So they've passed this skill down of making things. But as Maya was saying, they they definitely would make the wedding dresses or suits from clothes or things that they had, and they took whatever they had to make them and make them look beautiful and embellish them with beautiful embroidery and beads or buttons that they would find. So we have many examples of those that are still surviving in a lot of museums and homes, private collections like ours around the world. Mm -hmm. I could talk to you all night, and I hope that at some point we can get you back uh, and do a part two or a second interview with you. Uh, well, that would be there, wonderful. Yeah, there are so many different things that I can talk to you about. Well, um, we wear a lot of hats, and um, <laughs> we're still working on the play, the movie, as we documented our family working in the coal mines, working on the railroad, and even, you know, the Green Book, they talk about the Chitlin Circuit. One of my my first cousins had some of the nightclubs, the nightclub restaurant and bar in West Virginia. And that's where I've learned that Count Basie and Ray Charles and Quincy Jones, many, 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 many 
people came because there wasn't that many places you could stay. And it was fascinating. They put one little stone there uh, saying that he owned a large portion of Third Avenue. So it's important to me that we realize the value of history and documenting it. And when I took my children there to see where my mother grew up, all of it was gone, so it was in my head. So I wanted to bring Third Avenue and the dancing and the foods um, and the Chitlin Circuit back alive in a play and then in video. So we're working on movies and books and documenting all of those things before it's totally gone from memory so that the children can see the rich history and culture, even of Virginia, West Virginia, you know, um, how people migrated, the free, the, what the Freedmen's Bureau was, and that there were freedmen here. Right. Yeah. Where are you based? I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and currently I'm in, I guess you're wondering, I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Um, I have eight kids, 12 grandkids, and five great-grands. So I've been visiting and helping one of my daughters, and um, my grandson, he's nine, but he is learning the history, and he particularly concentrates on the science part. So he has illustrated my book, which oh, is wow. why I'm here in Columbus. He's nine years old, and he's an amazing artist, but he knows 200 names of dinosaurs and is an unbelievable artist. And so we try to develop whatever skills. Each of my children has an expertise. And I'm working to put our textile collection of over 750 textiles and 30,000 artifacts in trust, like the Smithsonian. So it'll be passed from generation to generation. It'll be cared for, and all of the descendants, whether black, white, or Native American, Hispanic, whatever they are, they'll um, receive an annual check, similar to how the Smithsonian has stood the test of time, we're now moving to put our collections like that because it will definitely outlive me and it needs to be cared for and um, continue acquiring acquisitions for our family story and legacy. That's great. Well, I, I hope someday that our paths will cross and we will meet in person. Uh, Teresa Camp, we're going to share all of the links that you have provided so that people can learn more about your work. And, yes, please let us know when you're coming to New York or Philadelphia. We have a connection at the Belmont, uh, the, the Belmont Mansion uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, okay. And some places here in New York City. And the, and whatever we can do to help you get an audience and to, to promote what you're doing, we want to help. You will be amazed. Every time I mount one of our exhibits, I find new textiles from my parents' collection, and things I've never seen before that my mother acquired or we acquired that I had totally even forgotten about. And when I put it all together, I learn a lot because in my last exhibit, we have several pictures. I had several, seven pictures of the Benin bronze, and the man's arms are being held up. So Tennessee Temple is a Christian university, and they asked me, they said, are you saying that that's Moses? and his arms are being held up by the arm bearers like Aaron and her when they were fighting Amalek. And I said, no. I said, I'm not saying that's Moses, but you thought it was Moses, I guess, because they're holding his arms up and they're dressed in battle attire. I said, but what I can say is this West African Benin kingdom, they either were there and saw that they won the battle because they were holding up Moses' arms, or they read about it, and they've done it in several different battles because it worked. And it is absolutely amazing to see the complexity of the designs and the craft that we have. We have sewing in shells, in beads, in gourd, in leather, in wood that has stood the test of time, hundreds of years in our collection. So I can't wait to come and share it with you and your listeners. That would be great. Um, as we conclude here, can you explain uh, the difference or the role of silk versus cotton in the African-American history? You said of of cotton versus? Silk. Silk? Yes. Yes. Well, cotton, the, in our exhibit, we actually have African cotton and we have different American grades of cotton. When the British 
or Portuguese and Spanish came to West Africa, they were standing up straight, picking the cotton over their heads. It grew so high because they used the biblical or God-given principle of rotating the crops every seven years. Well, they didn't do that here in America when they were enslaved. They didn't let the land grow fallow because they were trying for maximum production, and it, they began having to pick cotton bent over, and it became back-breaking work. Cotton, it actually scratches um, when you're trying to pull the soft, fluffy white part out of the um, bowl that opens up. It's really hard and sticky and a hard process. So silk, they had been going to Asia, I don't even know how long, because I've definitely got it documented since the 1100s, and the Portuguese sailors introduced opium in the East Sea China, in, in the East China Sea Coast in the 1500s going for silk. And in fact, it was with the Arab traders and European traders back in the Grecian times, it was called Silk Road. So for centuries, people have been trying to get elaborate fabrics. Africa had many of them, but Asia had the technique of producing a shiny, really smooth finished silk. Cotton is more natural, breathing, um, a rougher texture, but also a natural fiber. Egypt had the finest cotton. Outside of Egypt, West African, or what they're calling Sea Island cotton, is the finest grade. And that's because the people from Egypt, I was in a debate with one young man. He kept saying his family was from Dubai. He was here getting a business degree, but he's a cotton broker, and he knows his cotton. And what I was showing was Egyptian cotton. I said, no, sir, I've never been to Egypt, haven't gotten cotton from Egypt. This is Sea Island cotton, and this is West African cotton. And we went round and round for a minute. Then I stopped and said, you know something, sir, you're right. The people migrated from Egypt to West Africa, in the case of some of the tribes. Some were indigenous in there. I said, then they were taken, extracted for slavery in America, and then produced what's called Sea Island cotton, or the finest cotton outside of Egypt. And I had to start laughing because he was able to find the people by cotton. Another way we've documented was when two of the tribes were taken by Assyria and Babylon, those two and a half tribes did, of Jewish people did not have the ability to do indigo, which is the blue, purple, scarlet colors, and they were lamenting that, oh, their tassels and all their garments and everything were white. Well, as you know, West Africa has plenty of indigo, and they were brought here by the French, by the Spanish, by the Dutch, and by the British, and Florida did three crops of indigo a year. And they did it for the blue dye that's put in cotton, clothing, and Levi jeans used to be blue indigo. Now they're done by synthetic blues, but you have plenty of the blue indigo or um, dyes that are in New York. You know, a lot of the different shops carry them, and that blue dye, and they carry cotton. And then cotton is more breathable and natural, where the silk is a little more smothering in terms of having it against your skin. But the cost of the silk was extremely high, and the kings and royalty and nobility everywhere wanted to wear it. So Napoleon even said that he wanted the indigo for his royal robes and banners, but he also wanted them in silk because they liked that shiny fabric and the fine embroidery that was done by West Africans, Indians, and Asian people or the countries. We could go all wow. night on textiles. Yep. So anyway, that's how they can find the, the Jewish people because uh, the Bible says the sons of the daughter of the tribe of Dan could do indigo, the men from Tyre, which are Canaanites. And then it talks about the metalsmiths that David even assembled. They wore blue. So the West African people can dye blues and purples, and we have quite a few of them in our collection. And they were here in America because the Gullah people were forced to do indigo, 
and when you're forced to do indigo and you, you're not allowed not to do it, their skin turned blue and it smothered them. It actually kills you because your pores have to breathe. So Queen Quet and the Gullah Nation do a tribute to the indigo workers along the mm-hmm. Gullah Coast, which is Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, and North Carolina. It, it, wow. it covers every. It covers so many different things because the language of the Gullah people has officially become um, a language, not just Ubonics. They link that language to Sierra Leone and other places. Um, it's it's amazing. I still have to learn cuneiform and Hebrew, so it's it's really important that people of all ages see the need to learn more so that we have access to to records and knowledge before it's lost, and then teach our children the joy of knowing multiple languages. That's amazing. We definitely need a part two with you. Uh, So please um, uh, let us uh, indulge more of your time in the future, and and let's get that on the calendar, because we need to hear all of this knowledge and spread it with our viewers and put it on the history book so it can be recorded. Sounds good to me. At your convenience. All right, so Teresa Camp, it was such a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. We look forward to future collaborations. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you come in, we will host you as best as we can with our respective networks. Uh, but, Teresa Kemp, for all of us to hear, this is really a phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Have a good night, and thank you for listening. You too. Goodbye. Bye-bye.